If some Sunday we were to show up to this house of worship and find a notice on our door stating we could no longer preach the gospel, what would we do? Such a prospect seems so unlikely, so outlandish to us in the land of the free that it would probably honestly be quite difficult for any of us to accurately say for sure, to speculate what we would do. But you know, for many of our brothers and sisters around the world, orders to cease preaching Jesus are not far-fetched. They are reality. And as our text from Acts this morning reveals, almost from the moment the gospel began to be preached, there have been those in authority who forbade it. So how should Christians respond if they are told not to speak of Jesus? When do we have to submit to the authorities over us, and when is it right to defy them? How should believers respond when the practice of our faith comes under threat? The answers to these questions are found in this morning's text, but let me give you the context before we get there. There is a lame beggar, a man crippled from birth, more than 40 years old. He has been healed by the apostles, Peter and John. And this man has been a fixture at a place called the Beautiful Gate on the way to the temple in Jerusalem. Daily, he was carried there and he sat there begging for alms. So his healing is very public and great news to a great many people, all those who had passed by him and seen him there year after year after year. And word about this miracle spread quickly. So the crowds are now running to see the man. And they want to witness this miracle firsthand. Their enthusiasm and their curiosity provide the platform for Peter to preach and to explain. But while Peter's preaching of the gospel made some people happy. And some even were saved. It greatly annoyed others. At least it did the religious authorities. So they had Peter and John arrested because they were telling people about Jesus and giving him glory for this man's health. We'll pick up the story after Peter and John have spent a night in custody. But before we do that, let's talk to the author again. Almighty God, you have blessed us with a wonderful word. When we open it, every time we open it, we hear your voice. And in the words we read and what we hear, you are revealing, graciously revealing yourself to us. Thank you, Father, for your word. Help us to love it, increase our love of it, and help us to hear this day what you want to say to us through it. We ask in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So while it's not always true that no good deed goes unpunished, right? We don't want to get that cynical in this life to think that every time I step out to do something good, something bad's going to happen. Every believer should understand that sometimes, and eventually, doing the right thing for God will land us in difficult places. Contending for what we believe may very well get us into trouble. Uh, being faithful at all times will be 
personally costly, and none of that should come as a surprise, and none of that should dissuade us from doing the right thing for God. But the threat of consequence is intended to make us stand down. The price to pay may be being harassed or being ridiculed or becoming unpopular or in some extreme cases the risk to our lives and risks to our livelihood. These things may tempt us to draw back and not speak what we believe. That's what the religious authorities are hoping for as they dig into their old bag of tricks here and use their power to intimidate and attempt to silence the preaching of the gospel. The high priest and his company examined Peter and John and they want to know by what power and whose name has this miracle been accomplished, the healing of the lame beggar. Verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. So even a casual reader of scripture can see the difference between Peter filled with the Holy Spirit and Peter not filled with the Holy Spirit, right? You've read the story. You understand the difference between Peter filled with the Holy Spirit and Peter not filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter not filled with the Holy Spirit was fearful, wasn't he? And he was afraid to the point that he would even deny his best friend in order to try to save his life. But this Peter that we're seeing today in the book of Acts is different, not just because he's learned a little bit more, not just because he has a little bit more experience, but because he is changed and filled with the Holy Spirit. For years, I met with a fellow named George LaPere before our worship services to pray for them. And oftentimes, George would conclude his prayer with a word for me, which was a version of a prayer he used to pray for himself in the days when he preached. And he would say, Lord, don't send him up there alone. <laughs> if all a preacher has in a pulpit are his best thoughts, everyone's in trouble. Okay? Everyone is in trouble. Preaching is the heralding of God's word. And God's word's declared will only be effective if it has the power, the presence, and the work of the Holy Spirit going with it. Well, as Peter stands before the council, he is not alone. He is full of God. He is filled with the Spirit. And so he is fully empowered to speak God's truth. And what we're reading here in the book of Acts is an example of what Jesus was talking about, what Luke recorded in the 12th chapter of his gospel, verses 11 and 12, when the Lord said to his disciples, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Why? Why do you not need to be anxious about that? For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you might say. Peter begins his defense filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we have heard from the scripture read earlier, his response goes beyond explaining, right? He just can't seem to help himself. You give this guy an audience and he's going to take advantage for sure. Even accusers, he cannot help himself. By the name of Jesus, you want me to answer your question, okay, how did this happen? By the name of Jesus, through the power of Jesus this man stands here before you well. That would have sufficed, perhaps, answered the question, but he goes on. By the way, the one in whose name this man has been healed, 
and by whom this man is well, happens to be the very one you killed. But God raised him up. You see a theme in Peter's preaching? Huh? Death and resurrection, you see it, right? Chapter 4, verse 11, Peter tells the council, he's the one you rejected. And then he borrows scripture from Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The same scripture that Jesus referenced in the parable that he told that Bren read about, referring to himself. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now the leaders tasked with building the people. Some, some there uh, who might have been involved in the literal job of building or maintaining the temple, the temple which was the physical and the spiritual hub of Jewish life, had rejected Jesus. The builders had rejected Jesus. Jesus who would become the foundation, who would become the head, who would become the one on whom the people of God would be built and unified and brought together. Peter says, you have rejected him. You have scorned this cornerstone. As one commentator put it, he said, you can't scorn a stone, but you can scorn a person. And they had scorned Jesus. And yet God's servant, whom the prophet Isaiah predicted, would be despised and rejected of men. This Jesus, who was, if you're reading the King James Version, set at naught of you. That's the accusation. You made him to be nothing. You treated him as if he were nothing. He has become the head. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Wow! He goes way beyond answering the question. And he sticks his neck way out there to say these things when you think about it. Now the way of salvation, Peter says, is through Christ alone. And the proof that Jesus is the way is standing right in front of the council. When we read earlier that this man clung to Peter and John, we see that this is serious. He's hanging with them even as they're being confronted, even as they're being accused. He's not gonna leave them, he's with them. And he stands there as proof that Jesus is the way of salvation. Holistic salvation, spiritual salvation, physical salvation. Because this beggar spent his life crippled and he was unable to walk, but now he's jumping for joy. He spent his life outside the temple, sitting at the gate, but after being healed, he walks in. He used to watch worshipers. Now he has become one. He is saved. He is saved presently. He is saved eternally by Jesus. And this is a claim that Peter is making. And in a sense, it's an invitation that he's extending even to this hostile audience that they might come to believe in Jesus. Now, it's an exclusive claim that Peter makes, right? It's a claim that flies in the face of both an ancient idea of salvation by good works, that you can earn your way into God's favor if you could just keep the law, or by our modern notion of religious pluralism, that there are many ways, many roads to heaven, many ways to be saved. And yet Jesus said it of himself, did he not? I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. 
Peter is bold enough to say this to a crowd that might kill him for it, to recognize the risk that he took. And I wonder, friend, would we be so bold to say such a thing? Are we so bold to stand for Jesus? Instead of jumping all over him, it seems the spirit-filling Peter had such powerful and eloquent words that his accusers are unable to find fault. They're listening with a sense of awe. And verse 13 says that they were astonished at what they were hearing. And one thing that has them mesmerized, one thing that has them scratching their heads is the ordinariness of these men. They're common. They're uneducated. How on earth? They, they are not schooled in the law. How can, how can he speak this way? How, how, this makes no sense. They're Galileans, for crying out loud. They, they're fishermen. You, you know, it, how can they speak this way? Today, we would, in the church, we would call them laypersons. They, they they, they're lay, there's not professional clergy here. I want to just take a second at that point and pause for a moment to recognize and say something I know you know, but I want to say it again. A seminary degree is not required for you to share the gospel. Okay? You don't need that. And if you think I lack pedigree, <laughs> therefore I can't. No, that should not be a deterrent. God is fully able, and we know this, right? God even delights to do extraordinary things with, ex with ordinary means, right? And that's good news for us, isn't it? Because by and large, we're just ordinary folk. And there's nothing wrong with that. We are not disqualified from sharing the gospel because we are ordinary folk. Maybe you're not as eloquent as you want to be. Maybe you're not as articulate as you'd like to be, especially when you're talking with your smart friends. <laughs> Assuming you have some smart friends. Don't let that stop you. Don't let that hold you back. Preach the gospel. And let God do with you what God is clearly doing here with Peter. I want you to consider the story of the conversion of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of all time. I'm sure some of you know that. I know I've shared it here from this pulpit. It's a, short, it's a story that bears repeating. How did Charles Spurgeon come to know Jesus? Well, it was on a wintry Sunday, January 6, 1850, when Spurgeon was on his way to worship. But the snow and the sleet intensified so much that he couldn't make the journey, so he turned down a side lane, and he came, instead of to the church he wanted to go to, which was the Congregational Church, he came to the Methodist Church. He entered this building for the first time in his life with the full intent of joining the morning service. There were no more than a dozen or maybe 15 people present, even the minister hadn't made it to church that morning because the snow storm was so bad. So they didn't even have a pastor that morning. It was the wrong church. It was the wrong congregation. It was the wrong weather. And it was the wrong preacher. Into the pulpit climbs a thin-looking man. He was either a shoemaker or a tailor. Spurgeon was never able to know anything more about this man. But he was certainly not a trained preacher. And as we shall hear, he wasn't very orthodox in his means either. 
He announced his text, Isaiah 45, 22, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. Spurgeon said, He had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text. And there was nothing needed by me, at any rate, except his text. I remember how he said, my dear friends, this is a very simple text. Indeed, it says, look. Now, looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. <laughs> well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. And you may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A child can look. One who's almost an idiot can look. <laughs> however weak or however poor a man may be, he can look. And if he looks, the promise is that he shall live. He went on in his broad Essex accent, Many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. It is Christ that speaks. I am in the garden in an agony, pouring out my soul unto death. I am on the tree, dying for sinners. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend into heaven. Look unto me. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. Some of you say we must wait for the Spirit's work, and you have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. After 10 minutes and running out of anything fresh to say, He looked about the congregation, and specifically to Charles Spurgeon, and he said, young man, you look particularly miserable. <laughs> well, said Spurgeon, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit about my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, he said. It struck right home. The preacher went on. And you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then he shouted at the top of his voice as only a primitive Methodist could. Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. And I did look. Ordinary, common people preaching God's powerful truth through the power of the Spirit. In our text from Acts, we see that ordinary, common Peter should not be able to speak with such clarity or with such force. 
We remember him as the one who spoke to Jesus, and I, you can see Jesus shaking his head. And you can see Jesus rebuking him for the things that he said when his mouth was in his control. But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is supernatural. It's beyond Peter's nature. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now at Pentecost, the church was gifted with tongues to preach the mighty works of God to the visitors in Jerusalem so they could hear those things in their own languages. But here the Spirit commandeers Peter's tongue to speak convincingly, convincingly in a native dialect and yet with the same purpose, to preach Jesus. To preach Jesus. And while the council examining Peter and John could not possibly have appreciated the message that, that was being conveyed to them, the accusers were impressed by an element of its presentation, and that is the boldness with which they were addressed. The word translated boldness means freedom in speaking, unreservedness in speech, to speak openly, frankly, without concealment, free and fearless, confidence, cheerful, courage, assurance. What do you suppose the authorities intended when they arrested Peter and John? in front of everyone. What do you think they thought was going to happen? When they took them into custody, it was a power move, right? It was a shot across the bow, so to speak. It was a reminder of who is in charge. Expected to see the next day a penitent, timid Peter and John standing before them, wringing their hands, worried about what might be happening to them after a night in detention. The last thing they expected was to hear truth spoken to power. And so boldly and so freely and so fearlessly, but Jesus had told them, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who can kill the body. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And Jesus' words there are saying, fear God, not man. Man can only do so much to you. God could do much worse. And Peter fears God more than he fears people now. He's more interested in pleasing God at any cost than compromising in order to please people. And the council members are astonished. They're not used to being talked to this way. And they make a little observation. There's a phrase there, they say, and they recognize that they'd been with Jesus. If you read that text, they recognize they'd been with Jesus. So in plain terms, they, this means they realize that Peter and John were Jesus' disciples, they make that connection. So this isn't a new thing that's popping up in Jerusalem, right? This is the continuation of what started with Jesus. But I wonder if there isn't more in their observation. As Jesus spoke with authority that astounded his hearers, remember those stories? They just, he, he speaks with authority way more than the scribes. Authority like none we've ever heard. As Jesus did that, now even his followers after his death are doing the same thing. And that's not really surprising. Uh, Greg Beale has a, has a good book out called We Become What We Worship. And in that book, he says, if people are committed to God, they'll become like him. If they're committed to something other than God, they'll become like that thing. So, friend, what are you committed to? 
and what are you becoming like? See, the deeper we go into our relationship with Jesus, the more like him we want to become. It is the will of God, Romans 8, 29, that we be conformed to the image of his son. And as we study this book of Acts, we're going to see, we see it here in this story, we're going to see it again and, and again, how the apostles take on the work and the experiences and the traits and even the trials of Jesus. So I'd like to believe that they recognized they'd been with Jesus as more than just observing that Peter and John were his disciples, but they recognized this because Peter and John had taken on the ways of their rabbi. The way that people would look at you and I prayerfully and see that we have taken on the ways of our Savior. This is something for us to aspire to. Amen? Amen. Unable to deny this miracle, the healed man is standing right in front of them. And unable to punish Peter and John because of their popularity with the crowd, the rulers moved to damage control. And control is the operative word here. So you see, authority in and of itself is not bad. Though current movements to overthrow all sorts of authority are reckless and dangerous and moving us quickly to a, a place of anarchy. Authority itself is not bad. In fact, authority is God-ordained. But the problem with authority among men, even the best of men at times, is it quickly equates to power. And Jesus taught that authority is about responsibility and that those in authority must serve those under their authority. But the world gets this backwards. The flesh views authority as power and as a means of personal gain. So we understand why the religious leaders here want to control both the narrative and the events. They, they want to stop the talking about it, and they want to stop any more events that might give glory or, to Jesus or credibility to these apostles. Their importance in this society depends on it. Their influence in this society depends on it. They have a lot to lose if they can't, if they can't tamp down this movement that will come to be known as Christianity. So these priests and scribes and elders, we should note this. They don't really care if good has been done. They don't mind that the beggar has been healed. They're not mad about that. They're not upset about that. They are fine if the apostles want to do good. They just don't want them to give any credit to Jesus. So do all the good you want, but don't give credit to Jesus. And you know what? Our contemporary culture can sport a similar attitude. We love it if the church wants to do good things. Do all the good you want, church, but don't preach. Don't be injecting Jesus into your good deeds. Don't proselytize. Live and let live. Let us alone. Do all the good things you want, but try to keep the gospel out of it. So the council decides to try to curb freedom of speech and warns Peter and John to stop speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. Now, God has put all authority in place, and God's word teaches us to obey authority. Romans 13, if you need a primer, 1 Peter 2. But human authority is not absolute. It does have limits. Believers are not required to obey when what is commanded of us by men contradicts what is commanded us by God. Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses. He told them to go and make disciples teaching. 
If Peter and John uh, are going to defy anyone in this moment, it's not going to be Jesus. But do notice that they model a peaceable, respectful resistance. They recognize that their choices, the choice that they are taking, may get them into further hot water, and yet they are truthful. Acts 4, 19 and 20, I think, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. We can't help it. We have got to talk about Jesus. All the council can do now is threaten them, and that's what they do, bless you. They threaten them, and they release them. Do you think it would be enough? With those threats, would that intimidation be enough to, to drive the church underground? Because that's what they're hoping for. Peter and John are released. They rejoin their fellow believers. They tell them all that went on. If you're following along in the text, you see the response in verse 24, they prayed. And we have seen already how prayer is key in the early church. They are prayerful people. Acts 2 tells us they are devoted to prayer. When confronted with difficulty, they turn first to the Lord. And what we have here from this place to verse 31 is a pattern for how to pray when you're facing persecution. The prayer begins with praise, not panic. Notice that. The news of threats to the church, as one commentator put it, led not to consternation, but concentration. Did you get that? Not consternation, concentration. And they're going to throw me off my game. It's going to make me focus even harder. And that's what's going on here in this church. The people turn to God in prayer, and in that prayer they begin by acknowledging that God is sovereign, that he is ruler over all. And don't we lose our minds when we forget that? Is that life is really bad when we lose sight of the sovereignty of God, that he has this whole thing in his hands. He's the creator of everything, of all things. And that gives them and it gives us, when we remember that, the perspective that we need when we're under threat. It places, places us in a proper position under the Lord, instruments in the Redeemer's hands. We are creatures. We're not the creator. We are part of his creation, a creation that he stewards perfectly. That's a great way to begin a prayer, don't you think? He's holding on to you. Remember that. They pray that. They pray to remember the sovereignty of God. They pray and they seek to understand their circumstances in light of Scripture. Another pattern we see in the early church. This word means something to them. They know this word. They refer to this word. They look into this word for answers to their struggles. They, the, the word of God informs their sense of what they're going through. And in their prayer, they cite Psalm 2, which Justin read. They see that it has a contemporary application. The nations rage. The Jews are raging. The Gentiles are raging. The authorities of the world unite against the anointed one. We've got Herod. We've got Pontius Pilate. Here we have the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. They're uniting against the anointed one as they did against David at a time, as they did against Jesus. Now they're uniting against the church. And yet in their rebellion, they carry out the predestined plan of God. In their rebellion, they're carrying out what God wants. Now, I do not have any time to solve the riddle this morning about free will and sovereignty. But I will tell you this, this text assumes it, just says it is the way it is. Look at what they pray for, verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word 
with all boldness. Now, I'm sure you know this, but in case you haven't thought much about it lately, we don't usually pray for what we have, right? We don't usually pray for what we have. We don't look at what we have and say, well, I'll take a couple more. We take inventory and say, Lord, I need. And this, I think, is what's going on. When the threats come down to the church, what do they do? What will they need? They will need boldness. So they turn to the Lord and they ask. The evil descending on the church is real and it's dangerous. The authorities have already demonstrated they have the power of life and death. They killed Jesus. They can kill whoever they want. They can cast out whoever they want right out of the circle of, of social religious favor. They can ruin lives. The rulers and elders are a formidable enemy, and the thought of being targeted by them, threatened by them, is going to stir up great fear and worry. So they pray. So I ask you, what do you think you'd pray for if you were in their shoes? I'm, I'm, I don't want you to answer out loud, but in your mind and in your heart, what would you pray for? The church prays here not for relief, not even for deliverance at this point from persecution, not for the judgment of their opponents, not for the destruction of their enemies, which tells us that uh, there's been some growing up in the rank of the disciples. Remember that whole, Lord, you want us to call down fire? Yeah, that one, Jesus just, what is wrong with you guys? No, they don't pray for that, so there's growth. Amen, there's growth, sanctification, progressive sanctification. We're becoming more like Jesus. No, they pray for boldness. That's what they want, so they can continue to bear witness, regardless of whatever might happen to them. Because the temptation to become timid was great. There is a temptation to shut it down, slow it down, water it down, all to save their skin. It was very real, but they didn't want to go there, so they asked God to help them. Help them to be faithful, help them to be bold in declaring God's truth. And I ask you, friends, might we pray similarly to God as a hostility to his word grows around us. Might we pray for boldness and courage to speak the truth of God to a world, to a people, to a family member, to a co-worker who desperately needs it. Might we pray this prayer for our graduates as we send them off to college or as they take jobs in a secular workforce. Might we pray for boldness for our children as they face increasing opposition and outright ridicule in their schools, in their social circles, should they dare stand for biblical truth. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. That's a prayer. That's a great prayer. That's a kind of prayer the Lord wants to answer. Do you ever wonder if your prayers are heard? The answers are rarely immediate, at least in my experience. 
Although I will tell you this, to give God glory, there was an occasion just this week where a colleague asked me to pray about something, and the next day it was answered. That's different, but cool, because God cares, right? But often we have to wait for, for our prayers to be answered, and, and, and we wonder, is it, is it a yes? Is it a no? Is it a wait a while? Is it a not yet? And these believers, these dear ones gather and they pray, and yet God is especially gracious to them at this time. He, know, he knows what you need. He'll answer according to that. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. Oh, shaken. Literally, shaken. That's a prayer meeting right there. That's awesome. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's the thing. And they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So God gives his answer here in a Pentecost way. The place of prayer is literally shaken. The spirit who filled Peter to empower him to bear witness filled all of them. And their prayer was answered. In the face of impending persecution, the people are empowered by God to speak his word with boldness. Well, that wraps up that incident in the book of Acts, which shows us at least this. The detainment of God's people does not lead to the derailment of God's plans. Not that I'm looking for a tweet, because that's a tweety thing. But that captures it, right? You look and you think, oh my goodness, we're going to jail. The whole thing is ruined. The detainment of God's people does not lead to the derailment of God's plan. <laughs> we know that from the Apostle Paul. Right? When people are like, I'm so sorry you're in jail. And he's like, no, this is great. I get to talk to all kinds of pagans, heathens. There is also in this text, in this passage, a reminder and a cause for hope. I think summed up in the words of John Calvin. Whatever may be the contrivances of men, God has at the same time declared that in setting up the kingdom of Christ, his power will be victorious. So one might say, the spread of the gospel, the kingdom of God, is unstoppable. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, like our brothers and sisters in the early church, we ask for boldness today. Boldness that we might speak your word with confidence and with ease. To speak it without fear of consequence. God, fill us with your spirit for the work to be done. Deliver us from the vanity of people pleasing. The worry of what we might lose or the pain we might suffer if we stand firm for you. Lord, the greatest need of our world is still for people to hear and believe the gospel. Like the members of that early church, we ask that you would help us to courageously and honorably stand against those who would seek to stifle the message of your love and salvation. And Father, we pray this for ourselves and the difficult circumstances represented in this congregation this morning, the tough things that we are encountering, but we're also praying for, uh, for our brothers and sisters across your world who even now are facing the true heat of spiritual battle and literal battles who are risking their lives 
and who are suffering greatly simply because they believe in you and they dare to say as much. We pray for boldness to declare your word, to definitively say and live as those who are on and by your side. And we ask always in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.